Welcome to the ABR podcast, where some of Australian Book Review's contributors read their articles or discuss them with ABR staff. My name is Peter Rose, and I'm the editor of ABR. If you enjoy these podcasts, think about subscribing to the magazine. Those 25 and under can do so for as little as $25 for the online version or just $60 for print plus online. My name is Christopher Menz and I lead the ABR Cultural Tours, which we present in association with Academy Travel. After our hugely successful tour to Vienna last year, we will lead a 13-day residential tour of Vienna this year. This will take in the spectacular collections of the Habsburgs, the musical heritage of Haydn, Mozart and Beethoven, and the striking modernist architecture of the city. Vienna, where we will base throughout the tour in October, is an ideal city for an extended stay, and the program has been designed to make the most of its many attractions. Several musical performances will feature in the program, and full details are available on the Academy Travel website. This week on the ABR podcast, we tell the story behind Indonesia's 20th century literary masterpiece, The Baru Quartet, a set of novels that began life in a jail cell. The novels were written by Indonesian author Pramuja Ananta Tour, widely considered a potential winner of the Nobel Prize on the strength of them. Pramuja instead won the Ramon Magsaysay Award in 1995 often referred to as the Asian Nobel Prize. Nathan Hollier, publisher at Australian National University Press, came across the novels when he was researching Indonesian publishing in 2018. In this commentary, Hollier explains why the Baru novels hold special significance for Australia, even though, as he writes, few Australians have heard of them. Here is Nathan Hollier with at least I've told these stories to you, Pramuja Anantatur and the Baru Quartet, which is published in the March issue of ABR. At least I've told these stories to you, Pramuja Anantatur and the Buru Quartet, by me, Nathan Hollier. What was the best decision Brian Johns ever made? In 2005, Johns, legendary leader of Penguin Books Australia, publisher of Elizabeth Jolly, Thea Astley, Frank Morehouse and so many others, and later managing director of the ABC and SBS, nominated his publication of the Buru Quartet by Indonesian author Pramuja Anantatua. Johns was speaking at an event for Pramuja's Indonesian editor and publisher, Joseph Isak, who was receiving the inaugural PEN Keneally Award for publishing. So this may have been a case of politeness on Johns's part, but there are reasons to think this was more likely a more considered assessment. The Buru Quartet of Novels represents one of the great achievements of world literature. This would be so if they were written and published in ordinary circumstances. On the contrary, composed and released under the most extraordinary conditions, they were the result of startling creativity, idealism, courage and vision. The Buru novels also hold special significance for Australia, though few Australians have heard of them. They were translated into English by an Australian, Max Lane, who met Pramuja as an embassy official in Jakarta at the start of the 1980s. 
Unusually, the novels were initially published into the English language market from Australia, with circulation primarily in Australia and Southeast Asia via Penguin's Singapore office. The novels effectively humanise Indonesia and even help to explain this nation, Australia's close neighbour and the fourth largest nation in the world by population. They show the creative process by which Indonesia was brought into being and of the visionary leader most instrumental in bringing it into being. Finally, these novels and the story of their publication reveal much about the nature of colonial power which we, as a colonial or post-colonial society, could learn from if we were not so attuned to listening only to the perspectives of the imperial centre. The novels take their name from the prison established on Buru, one of the Malaku Islands, after Major General Suharto seized power in Indonesia on 1 October 1965. Pramuja was imprisoned there, along with his friend, political ally and publisher Hasim Rakman, and thousands of other political prisoners. Pramuja wrote the novels while in the prison. Just nine months after being released in 1979, he and Hasim formed a publishing company with Joseph and published the first novel of the quartet. Its cover bore the audacious words, a novel from Buru Island. Bumi Manusia, this earth of mankind, was met in Indonesia with a glowing reception from prominent intellectuals in major publications. Lane, soon to be recalled to Australia for having undiplomatically translated Bumi Manusia into English, remembered it as ecstatic. Indonesian Vice President Adam Malik stated at the time, Our youth, by reading this, will understand how their fathers confronted colonialism. The North American rights were purchased by William Morrow and Co., and there also, the novels were recognised as masterworks, one of the 20th century's great artistic creations, in the words of a Washington Post reviewer. A work of the richest variety, colour, size and import, founded on a profound belief in mankind's potential for greatness and shaped by a huge compassion for mankind's weakness. Widely spoken of as a prospective winner of the Nobel Prize, in 1995 Pramuja received the Raymond Magsaysay Award, often referred to as the Asian Nobel Prize. By the 2000s, the court had been translated and published into many languages and territories. By contrast, Each of the novels was banned in Indonesia shortly after their release. With the end of the Suharto regime and the arrival of Reformasi in the wake of the Asian financial crisis of the late 1990s, they could be sold in that nation again. I bought the US Penguin edition of This Earth of Mankind in a Periplus bookshop in Yogyakarta in 2018, and after reading it immediately ordered the following three novels, Child of All Nations, Anak Semua Bangsa, Footsteps, Jejak Lanka, and House of Glass, Ruma Kacha. In prison on Buru, unable to find writing materials or a space to work, Pramuja composed the novels in his mind and spoke them to the other prisoners in the large hut they shared. What drove Pramuja to do this within the brutal, oppressive conditions of the prison? I've been working on these stories for a while, he replied when Hasim asked him this question. Who knows, I might not survive long in Buru. If I die, at least I've told these stories to you. There, then, is part of the answer. At the time of his imprisonment, 
Pramuja was already a well-known author and journalist within Indonesia. He'd published novels, memoir, reportage and social commentary, including in defence of the Chinese in Indonesia, which had resulted in his imprisonment for nine months in 1960, and a collection of his newspaper essays on Raden Ajeng Kartini, the first indigenous intellectual of the Dutch Indies, whose writings were influenced by Enlightenment thinking. Pramuja edited the cultural pages of the major daily Bintang Timur, Eastern Star newspaper, published by Hasim, and wrote regular essays for that paper, mainly on figures forgotten, or rather, written out of Indonesian history during Dutch colonial rule. One such figure was Terto Adi Suerjo, who would provide the inspiration for Minky, the central character of the Buru Quartet. Suerjo, a Javanese of noble heritage, was one of the few indigenous people of the Dutch Indies in the 19th century to obtain an education at an elite Dutch colonial Hoger Burger School. He later trained as a doctor in Batavia, today's Jakarta, before working as a journalist. He founded the first formalised native business network, the Islamia Traders Union, or Sarakat Islam, and the first newspaper in the Dutch Indies to advance a native perspective and agenda informed, like the writings of Kartini, by an awareness of the world outside the Indies and of the possibility of a new, independent Indies nation. Pramuja's novels take place over the period from the emergence of Kartini at the end of the 1890s to the end of the 1910s, by which time the colonial regime had cracked down on Suerjo's and Minky's newspaper and effectively sabotaged Sarakat Islam, the first Indies mass nationalist movement. At its height, Sarakat Islam had hundreds of thousands of members and was probably the largest political organisation in the world. However inspiring the achievements of Suerjo, who remains an idol for many Indonesians today, Pramuja's greatest interest in researching this man's life was in obtaining an understanding of the historic impetus for the creation of the state of Indonesia, and on the basis of that, an understanding of why Indonesia was not developing as he believed it could and should. Why, in 1965, was this new nation still stubbornly backward and corrupt? Pondering this question, Pramuja seethed with anger and wonder. After this earth of mankind, which sets the scene of colonial oppression, the plot of the later novels is driven by Minky's dawning awareness of the need to create Sarakat Islam as an inclusive, democratic mass organisation to properly represent the interests of all the people of the Dutch Indies and to realise their national and individual hopes and aspirations. Child of all nations, powerfully influenced in the novels by women intellectuals and leaders as well as men, Minky is inspired by the ideals and achievements of the French Revolution and by the Chinese, Filipino and Japanese resistance to European oppression, while also made conscious of Japan's own imperialist tendencies. By the end of the novels, what stands in the way of such a democratic body has become apparent. The colonial regime, certainly, which ferments ethnic and religious identity and division in underhand and grossly dishonourable ways, but also superstitious, insular, tyrannous local tradition. Speaking of the peasant people of the Indies, treated like cattle by the colonisers, Minky asks himself, was their situation any better before the people and land of the Indies had fallen into the grip of the Dutch? 
My teachers at school had taught that things had been worse. The Rajas had never cared about the health and welfare of their subjects, only about how to rob them and use them for royal pleasure. And, damn it, I had to agree with my teachers. A novel, as Thomas Hardy said, is an impression, not an argument. One should be wary of seeking to systematise a novel's themes, as also of critics who lorded over a novelist for not presenting an internally coherent academic treatise. Nonetheless, it's a great strength of the Buru Quartet that Pramuja advances through the experience and consciousness of Minky and other characters a powerful conception of Indonesian world history, as it is and as it might have been. Minky works for the creation, within the Dutch Indies, of a properly inclusive nation, not a romanticised version of a pre-colonial past in which all members have an equal formal and informal citizenship status, regardless of their race, religion, wealth, traditional social position or gender, and an equal investment in the development of their nation and its people. Imagining Pramuja, imprisoned on Buru Island and unable to write, but aware of the social, historical and aesthetic importance of his creative conception for his new nation, we can more fully understand how he found the will to recite his novels to his fellow prisoners, lest he die before he could write them down. In 1973, after eight years in Buru, Pramuja was given a space to write and a typewriter. Quickly, with barely a revision, the novels were typed out using every ounce of paper margin. When Pramuja, Hasim and other Buru prisoners were released six years later, in December 1979, it was not because of any liberalising wind in Suharto's palace. International pressure, especially from the US Congress, led by Minnesota Congressman Donald Fraser, and the practical challenge of putting thousands of people on trial without evidence, meant that continuing this large-scale incarceration was not feasible. Suharto and his allies and enablers within Indonesia settled for a renewed crackdown on dissent. This was the environment in which Pramuja, Hasim and Joseph came together in Joseph's tiny office in Jakarta to form the publishing firm Hastamitra, Hands of Friendship, and to publish the Buru Quartet. At the time of Sahado's coup in 1965, Joseph had been Secretary General of the Asian African Journalists Association and Vice President of the International Organization of Journalists. When asked about his first reaction to reading the manuscript of Bumi Manusia, This Earth of Mankind, after his own ten years jail in Jakarta, Joseph said, I can't describe it in words. It made me feel alive. Pramuja's fellow prisoners had had a similar response. The novels were gripping, moving. They had a unique importance for Indonesian readers and they were going to be released into a cultural and intellectual wasteland. In his account of the life of the Buru Quartet, Lane powerfully conveys the dramatic nature of the change in Indonesia wrought by Suharto's seizure of power. On the morning of 30 September 1965, President Sakato was the overwhelmingly popular leader of the country with tens of millions of enthusiastic supporters. More than half the population had joined political parties or mass organisations that supported Sakano and socialism a la Indonesia. While there was opposition to Sukarno and had incurred some restrictions, his popularity was massive and genuine. His ideas dominated. His speeches were listened to by everybody. 
reported in all the newspapers and followed by the people, rallies and marches by organisations that supported him were huge, filling the sports stadiums in the cities and the main streets in small towns. Even his opponents felt the need to use the revolutionary vocabulary he had created. There was no sense in any aspect of the public atmosphere that Sukarno was under threat of being deposed. By the morning of the next day, it had all disappeared. Under the leadership of Suharto, who was covertly backed by the United States, the Indonesian military coordinated a reign of terror across the last months of 1965 and on and on into 1968, collaborating with right-wing civilian militia to systematically murder somewhere between half a million and two million people. 80,000 people died in Australia's playground, Bali, all killed by Suharto's military for being allied to the pro-Sukarno PKI, the Communist Party of Indonesia, or for seeming to be. This party had grown as the secular socialist branch of Sarakat Islam when that organisation split, and before 1 October 1965 had as many as 3 million members, with a further 15 million connected to it through cognate organisations. Though Australian educationists and other leaders lament that there's not more interest in Indonesia, Lane makes the important point that such uninterest is hardly surprising, given the political and cultural reality that flowed on from Suharto's displacement of Sukarno. Quoting from Max Lane again, Indonesia is the fourth most populous country in the world, yet today and for the last 50 years, its international political presence has been almost zero. The primary reason for this is the 1965 counter-revolution in Indonesia and the consequent radical remaking-come-unmaking of the nation. On the one hand, this counter-revolution produced an Indonesian state and economy that posed no threat to either Western or Japanese imperial economic or geopolitical interests, and on the other, a society whose new post-counter-revolutionary experience would emasculate any progressive politics for decades and thus also its intellectual and cultural life. Ending the quote there. The first print run of Bumi Manusia, This Earth of Mankind, 10,000 copies, sold out in two weeks, and by the time the novel was formally banned after nine months of informal suppression, it had sold a phenomenal 60,000 copies. Quartet continued to sell well in Indonesia and remains inspiring for Indonesian youth within current political fermentations, though sales and distribution have been heavily curtailed by bans and state harassment. Even after he was released from prison, Pramuja was held under town arrest and not permitted to leave Jakarta until 1992. Weakened by his years in prison, he died in 2006 from heart disease and diabetes. Hasim died in 1999, Joseph in 2009. Pramuja, Hasim and Joseph were members of the Ankatan 45, Indonesia's 1945 generation. Adam Malik was too, in contrast to Sahado, who as a young man had volunteered with the Dutch colonial army, the KNIL. Like Sukarno, they thought that after the overthrow of Dutch colonial rule and the expulsion of Dutch businesses in 1956-58, the revolution they had been part of needed to continue within Indonesian society itself. Wouldn't Sukarno's trisakti ideal of sovereignty in politics, standing on one's own feet in economics, 
and real character in culture prove chimerical unless democratic institutions such as the Sarakat Islam of Sawerjo and Minki guarded against the recreation and institutionalization of autocratic power. From our current historical vantage point, these fears appear well-founded, not only for Indonesia, but for all of those nations which had freed themselves from European colonisation at the end of World War II and formed themselves as a third world. This term, coined by French anti-colonial anthropologist and historian Alfred Solvi in 1952, referenced the Third Estate of the 1789 French Revolution and was intended to convey that a newly organised global majority would take possession of the dynamic of world affairs from the Western First and Soviet Second worlds, as the people from outside the First Estate, the clergy, and the Second Estate, the aristocracy, had taken possession of national events in France. The Third World, as Vijay Prashad reminds us in his history of this initiative, was not a place. It was a project. Quoting here, he says, The great flaws in the National Liberation Project came from the assumption that political power could be centralised in the state and the National Liberation Party should dominate the state and that the people could be demobilised after their contribution to the liberation struggle. Once in power, the old social classes exerted themselves either through the offices of the military or the victorious People's Party, ending that quote from Vijay Prashad. According to the respected Indonesianist Harold Crouch, the Indonesian Communist Party won widespread support not as a revolutionary party, but as an organisation defending the interests of the poor within the existing system. The anti-PKI massacres, as an analyst in the CIA's Director of Intelligence wrote at the time, rank as one of the worst mass murders of the 20th century, along with the Soviet purges of the 1930s, the Nazi mass murders during the Second World War, and the Maoist bloodbath of the early 1950s. Nonetheless, Australia's leaders and intellectuals in 1965, for the most part, cheered on what was happening in our closest international neighbour, ignored it, or in some cases, such as in Christopher Kosher's The Year of Living Dangerously novel, implied that this mass extermination was the lesser of two evils, the greater evil being a communist Indonesia. Australia is also caught up in the dynamics of the world that Pramuja writes about, though we rarely hear or pay due credit to analysis advanced by writers and intellectuals from the international political and economic margins. Where Sahato raced to take control of the mass media and its messages on 1 October 1965, in Australia such state control by and large was and is not necessary. What we hear about why the centre is the centre and the margins are the margins is what the centre, now in the form of the United States, tells us. As a sub-imperial power, it suits us now to listen to the United States, its allies and no one else. If the Enlightenment dream of a just society is not faring well in Indonesia or throughout the former Third World, where cultural nationalism and religious and racial prejudice are stoked by leaders as a kind of balm for grotesque and growing inequality, New fundamentalisms of race, gender and sexual identity seem also to be emerging here, as in the United States in the United Kingdom, 
and partly for the same reasons. When Pramuja, Hasim and Yosef were released from prison, their children drove them around the new Jakarta so they could goggle at the city that had evolved while they were locked away. Joseph recalled, There were flashy buildings, many still under construction, very impressive. But I tried to explain to my children that they shouldn't be too easily impressed. They should ask themselves, who owned these buildings? Who's reaping all the profits from this development? Looking around our Australian cities, we might ask ourselves the same question. Thanks for listening to the Australian Book Review podcast. Join us again next week. If you enjoyed this episode, why not consider subscribing to ABR? Subscriptions start from just $10 a month for full digital access. Visit our website for more information. We'd like to thank Stacey Chan, who edits the podcast, as well as our contributors who take the time to read their articles and creative writing. And if you enjoy listening to the ABR podcast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes.